I'm having panic attacks, all right? The other night I thought I was having a fucking heart attack. I puked in a trash barrel on the way over here. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. I thought I was supposed to tell the truth here, you if are. only fucking you here. You are, Christ, yes. When a guy okay. comes in here against every, every instinct of, of privacy, of self-reliance that he has, and what do you do? What do you do, honey? You send him off on the street to score smack? Is that what you do? You're fucking ridiculous. Great. Why don't you just give me a bottle of scotch and a handgun to blow my fucking head off? Are we done here with this psychiatry bullshit? You know what? You what, can what the leave. fuck did I just put myself through? I'm fucking out of here. What's up, you guys? Uh, it, it is I, your, um, uh, your generous, gracious host, um, Ankh. Uh, how are you guys doing? So, I just was gonna give a brief introduction, uh, but first, to everyone messaging me who has been asking me if I am okay during the uh, fire I'm, uh, I'm fine um, for those that don't know there was this just insane fire in Santa Barbara and it was it was pretty close to our inpatient like we could see it from from the house and you know I was walking with my friend Zach back to the house and we looked on the the mountainside and we were like oh that, that fire looks pretty bad. And then by the time the, the sun went down, the whole sky was just illuminated with bright red and orange and smoke. And, and it got pretty out of control. But thankfully, uh, you know, it, it, it was headed in the opposite direction. I mean, whatever, fire is bad, but uh, it was headed in the opposite direction. And then it, it rained the next day, and I think it, it contained most of it. Um it it just kind of uh it was kind of freaky the next day it was like raining ash all over us and um what's even scarier is that the last time there was this epic fire in Santa Barbara it, it it loosened all the soil so when it did rain uh after the fire it caused this massive mudslide and um the the 101 freeway was blocked off and and it 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 killed a few people it, it, because people refused to evacuate the, their houses. So I asked, <laughs> I asked the board of directors, like, well, if we were told to evacuate our facility, where would we go? And he was telling me we'd go to like, I, I guess the a shelter or something. So that would would have not been very pleasant at all but yeah for those asking I'm I'm fine um I'm pretty sure the fire is contained and uh, we're all good now so just wanted to give a quick update and um do a brief uh introduction on um 
my guest, um, Matt, uh, it was uh, featured on this documentary. It's called From Shock to Awe. And it's, for those who haven't, um, who don't know anything about it, it's, it's really groundbreaking stuff. It, it really has to do with war veterans who get back from deployment and tours, um, and who are suffering from PTSD and, and extreme anxiety and, and, um, and depression, uh, with, um, by means of, um, ayahuasca based therapy. And it kind of delves into the, the details of, of what they're going through and what it's like for them. Um, once they get home, because, you know, being deployed in Afghanistan and the, the chaos that one would witness over there and feeling like you're constantly in danger of your life and then to try and reintegrate and transition back into, you know, a, a normal way of living at home and, and reintegrating and transitioning back with your family and, you know... I, I can only imagine what that would be like, you know. I know that my experiences, you know, I, I've witnessed people getting stabbed and shot, and that was traumatic enough, but I that's in no way comparable on the same scale to being deployed in a war. It just, that's just on such a, a more extreme level of trauma that one would face. You know, he's he mentions just everyday living, um, being so, so like more of a struggle, like, you know, going grocery shopping and and being anxious because you're around such close proximities to other people. And, um, uh, he, he mentioned a, like seeing yellow, uh, trash bins and how, um, people would put IUDs in, in them when he was deployed and, and how that would, you know, set off and trigger like anxiety with them. So, um, it's, it's really an incredible and inspiring, um, story he has to, to be able to have the courage to come forth and talk about all the, you know, issues with detoxing off of pharmaceuticals. I mean, in the movie, there's one point where he opens his bathroom cabinet and there's like, like 90 prescription bottles. And, um, the fact that he was able to, to overcome all that is just incredibly amazing and, and, um, and heartwarming. So, for those that want to check out the documentary, it is called From Shock to Awe. It is available for streaming um, on their website, which is from shocktoawe.com. It is available on Vimeo, iTunes, Google, Amazon, and there's a DVD and Blu-ray available also for purchase. I th- I'm uh, fairly certain to stream it online. It's $4.95. So for anyone listening, please go and, and watch it. Um, it. It was just a very incredible and, and emotional watch. So with that, I am going to bid you all adieu and segue into this interview with my guest, Matt. Um, he's he's an amazingly articulate and outspoken person, and he is... Uh, is just so positive to, to get through all of the things he has encountered and to come out on the other end so warm and loving is just incredibly inspiring. So 
if you're listening, Matt, thank you again for, for coming on. It was it was absolutely amazing to to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. And um, anyone out there, uh, you know, thank you for all the support. I love you guys. Um, you know, feel free to reach out through our email, nodsquadpodcast at gmail.com. I am going to do my best to, you know, respond to the emails we've gotten. It's just, it's been quite a challenge being so limited to technology for the next 40 days, but I promise I'll get back to you all. Please, if you can, leave us an iTunes review or like our social media out there, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that great stuff. And um, anyone who's struggling or needs, um, you know, someone to, to talk to, I will always be here and be. I'll do my best to make myself available. Um, I'll be more reachable <laughs> come January 10th when I'm working and going to school. Um, but with that, just be safe out there. I love you guys. Um, especially be safe during the holidays. Um, <clears throat> I know around this time every year is... Is from, my, from my experience, it's when people are, are going out, relapsing, and it's when the biggest rate of overdoses happen. So just um, whatever you can do to be safe out there, please do it. And with that, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. So I'm out. Love you guys. And as always, peace, love, and all the above. veteran and advocate. Um, I served with the 101st Airborne Division uh, two times in Afghanistan and uh, on the second time I was medevaced from theater. I was put on a pretty dazzling array of pharmaceutical drugs um, among which, uh, amongst which were opiates and benzodiazepines and stimulants. Um, they had me coming and going really. It was uh, you know, stimulants to wake up, uh, depressants to put you down, and opiates in between to manage the pain. Uh, it was it was rough. It was extremely difficult for a very long period of time, and I became very very dependent upon these substances, and um, it was killing me. It was literally, I was dying before everybody's eyes, and um, eventually, I, I had to try to find something different, and. I moved to Colorado to take advantage of, uh, of cannabis, uh, where it's, it's legal here. And, uh, cannabis allowed me to get off of all the prescription medications, but it didn't really address a lot of the root issues that were the cause of, of all the things that I've been suffering from. So I, I kept looking for other, um, other solutions and eventually I came to psychedelics. Um, I was approached by the producer and director team of a movie called From Shock to Awe in um, 2015. And they asked me if I would drink ayahuasca on camera. 
uh, for the film, and I told them I would do anything to fix myself. So that's exactly what I did. I, I drank ayahuasca for the first time in April of 2016, and as soon as I I I, I went through the first experience, I, I knew that this could work. So I, I I decided I had to learn everything there was to know about ayahuasca and about psychedelics in general. So I during the, the year of 2016, I, I systematically pursued every single psychedelic on the face of the planet, uh, almost, at least the natural ones. Um, and so a month after, after my first ayahuasca experience, I went down to Peru for, uh, for um, an ayahuasca dieta and also uh, took advantage of some of the other natural medicines they have down there. Um, a month after that, it was Ibogaine and Toad in Mexico, and a month after that, it was uh, Peyote here in the States. A month after that, it was Mushrooms here in the States, and um, 2016 was a pretty crazy year, but I emerged from it without a dependence on cannabis anymore. I was able to, to reduce my use of cannabis and eventually come to the point where I really didn't need to alter my regular state of being in order to deal with reality. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I watched the film and it's, it's, it's just very intense to say the least. Um, I, I witnessed you, you, there was one point in the film where you showed the myriad of prescription bottles in your, in your, um, cabinet in your bathroom. And it was just, it was just so insane. Um, did you you were prescribed all these after your tour in Afghanistan, correct? Yeah, correct. Um, I I actually got prescribed to opiates for the very first time um, after my first deployment. Um, I had some some injuries. I had a, a bunch of um, undeclared traumatic brain injuries. Um, when you're when you're deployed, a lot of times you're exposed to blasts and um, things like that, and it. It definitely affects you. You have a concussion, uh, but it, maybe it's not so bad that uh, you have to uh, get medevaced. And so, a lot of us are just like, "Put me back in the game, coach." And that's exactly what they do. And and I, I probably had about seven or eight undeclared TBIs on my first deployment. And um, uh, so, when I came back home, that's when they they first started giving me a few of the pharmaceutical substances. Um, I actually had my first suicide attempt um after my first deployment uh you know there's this honeymoon period when you first get back where uh everything's beautiful and golden and you're you're happy to be back with your family you're happy to be back in the states and eventually that fades and i found myself thinking about all the things that i'd seen all the things that i'd done and all the things all the people that i i'd lost um, in the quiet moments and eventually it, it wore too heavily on me and I, I attempted suicide, um, with the help of all those pharmaceuticals that they had prescribed me. Yeah. What, what it was that transition like for you from de going from deployment and being kind of in this chaotic environment to everyday living and, and reintegrating with your family and stuff. Um, and could you briefly touch on for people who aren't aware what what it's like dealing with um, PTSD? Uh, yeah. Well, um, PTSD is is it's particularly insidious. It it doesn't ever really go away. It's present all the time. You are constantly on high alert 
hypervigilance was probably my, my biggest uh, symptom at first. I was always looking at piles of trash on the side of the road to see if they were IEDs. Um, every time I would come around a corner, <clears throat> I would be pie in the corner to see if there was a guy behind it that would uh, try to shoot me. Um, and it didn't really matter to my mind that consciously I knew I was here in the United States. Um, irrationally, I still believed I was in danger. And, and so I treated everything as a threat. Um, that was really what, what led to a lot of my issues because I'd have a lot of um, anger over things. When, when people weren't doing things that, that could possibly make them safer or they were flagrantly doing things that would set off all my alarms, it would make me angry. And um, I'd lash out and I'd lash out at the people that didn't deserve it the most, you know, my family and my friends. Uh, unfortunately, that's th those are the people that really catch the brunt of everything because they're the people that are closest to you. Uh, at the same time, they're the people that deserve it the least because they're the ones that are there for you. Yeah, definitely. I, I can only imagine like the the kind of traumas that you were exposed to while you were over there and um, coming back to, you know, this environment, I'm sure loud noises or or open areas, it it probably triggered a lot of anxiety within you. Yeah, I was um, especially like uh, all the, the normal places here in, in America, like stores grocery stores, Walmart, um, any sort of department store, mall, things like that. Those were really bad. Um, every single time there was a large cluster of people, like a marketplace, a bazaar overseas, um, something bad would happen. An ex explosion would go off, uh, people dead, dying, um, you know, screams of children. It, uh, it was all there. And, um, so when I was back here in the States and I was faced with situations in which there was a lot of people milling about and, um, and then there's all of these triggers in your environment. Um, I, there was one particular thing that, that I noticed, um, our, uh, the enemy in our particular area, they shifted towards the end of the deployment to using these yellow, um, plastic containers to hold an IED and, um, I remember very distinctly a time when I came around the corner in a Walmart and, um, there were a bunch of them, <laughs> they were all sitting there and, um, and I, I went immediately into high alert and, um, I had to, to, to get out of there pretty quickly. Yeah. That sounds just, that just sounds, um, just like a nightmare that I'm sure you were experiencing, you know, flashbacks and and panic attacks and, um, night terrors of, of, you know, of all types, you know, from, from getting back from, from all of that. What, um, what services are provided by the military after you're, you're back from deployment? <laughs> um, really not a lot, uh, truthfully. I mean, they, they do have things, but the fact is, is that just admitting that you have PTSD, especially at that period of time, was a basic, uh, basically a death sentence for your career. Um, there's there's no way you can continue being an infantryman. I mean, uh, my my recruiter really said it best when I asked him, "Okay, what is what does the infantry do?" And he said, "Kick down doors, blow shit up, and kill people." Yeah. And um, if you have post traumatic stress, you can't really do those things. And um, so I, I 
there's this massive stigma against just admitting you have these problems. So I would just continue trying to maintain the facade and, uh, uh, I, there's nothing wrong with me. What do you, what do you mean? Uh, I'm fine. What are you talking about? Um, it's that kind of attitude that a lot of soldiers have that prevents them from getting the help that they, they possibly could use to, to get them out of that hole. Yeah. It seems kind of like once you're back, they, they send you to a doctor and throw a bunch of prescriptions at you and beta test different pharmaceuticals just to see if it, what will stick. But, um, from, from the sounds of it, you were on some really heavy duty kind of prescriptions. Um, when you went to Colorado, you, you did an at-home detox or how did you go about getting off those prescriptions? Cause it sounds like a very painful withdrawal experience. Yeah, actually, when I, when I got to Colorado, I was on, I think it was 160 milligrams of Oxycontin a day for um, just for regular pain, and then uh, 60 milligrams of Roxycodone for breakthrough pain that I would take periodically whenever it, it got, you know, the, the breakthrough pain got worse. And um, uh, there was uh, the morphine pills, um, which didn't really work nearly as well as the Roxycodone, tell you the truth. But... Um, the uh, uh, and then the, the benzodiazepines. I was on um, six milligrams of uh, Xanax, uh, alprazolam a day, and wow. um, I was on thirty milligrams of Valium three times a day. Um, it, this was all after the the Medivac when I had really really serious physical problems that I was dealing with. So um, those were those were what uh, five of the medications that I was on. I think I was on about 18 when I got here. Um, the, uh, there was a bunch of others, SSRIs and SNRIs, you know, to try to deal with depression. And, um, then there were a few others, neuroleptics and anti-seizure medications. Um, some of them were prescribed for migraine off label. And, um, it, it really was, it's sort of like a chemistry experiment. Uh, you, are uh, being prescribed a bunch of medications off-label um, just because they might help in your condition. And a lot of times, the, the benefit is negligible, if at all, and the side effects just keep multiplying the more you get into your system. I had one doctor finally tell me, um, when I finally started getting a few doctors that, that were sympathetic to my my struggle. And, um, one of them said that, you know, if, if a veteran is on, uh, you know, six prescriptions already, and if you are adding another prescription to the list, the chances of that fixing everything are, 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 you know, little to none. So uh, the fact that I was on so many was, was telling, uh, people really just don't, didn't really know how to deal with veterans returning from war and we would just get thrown every prescription in the book. It's, it's a crapshoot. And I think that's one of the, the hidden secrets of psychiatry in America today is they don't really know what the hell they're doing. They're just, uh, I mean, they, you, you tell them, uh, okay, these, these are my problems. This is a list of the things that I'm going through right now. And then based on those things, they categorize you, with a, a label. And then that label has a certain number of medications that can be used to treat it. And, um, and then they just kind of, they go down the list and they see which ones work. And it's just, 
sort of at random. They, they'd put me on one medication one month and um, I could be like chewing on my tongue and rocking in a corner for that entire month. But I had to take it every single day just so they know that, that if it works or not. And um, it's, you know, I come back the next month and I tell them what a, a hell the previous month had been and they might lower the dosage or maybe they switch me to another medication that, that, that is slightly uh, different. But um, overall, it, it's it's a complete crapshoot, really. They are um, just throwing things at you kind of almost at random. I mean, they narrow it down a little bit, but in reality, their their method of prescribing these medications is is pretty haphazard and, and doesn't have a lot of focus or direction. And um, I think that they don't have a whole lot of tools that are very effective either in their toolbox. So um, all of these things that they're giving us really aren't any more effective than placebo, which is especially true. The only two medications that are approved for the, the treatment of PTSD are SSRIs. Um, I believe one of them is uh, Zoloft, and uh, Zoloft or Paxil, and um, I, I believe it's Zoloft, and it has no better uh, efficacy than placebo. If you go and look at the research, it's it's right there, right along with placebo. It's it's not effective at all, and they're still handing these things out like candy. Yeah, that's that sounds just so so overwhelming. Like at the height of your prescription use what was it like being on all those myriad of different pills? Like, it sounds like just a giant fog. I mean, do you, were you even, um, aware of, of your surroundings while you were on all those different medications? That was variable. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on, uh, what I had taken in the, in the last, you know, couple hours. <clears throat> um, there's some footage of me in the movie actually, where I'm literally falling asleep in the middle of my sentences. And, and that was because of the opiates. The opiates had just started taking effect, and I, I began to nod. Yeah. And as any person that's been on opiates knows, they, they know exactly what that's like. You know, you're nodding in and out, and sometimes you're, you're saying things that don't make any sense whatsoever. It, it had to be completely frustrating to have a, a conversation with me, and I, I can hear that in my wife's voice. Personally, I don't remember a lot of it. There's a there's a lot of I, I lost a few years in there where I, I have sporadic memories, but there's there's not a whole lot there, and and that was just because of the sheer number of medications I was on. I was either you know nodding off in the middle of my sentences or I was screaming at the ceiling you know over nothing uh, because of this extreme agitation, rage, and and upset. You know it's. Uh, it, it, it wasn't, I, I couldn't have been any fun to be around. And, and I periodically, I, I would just lose more and more and more of my connection with the world around me. My friends would dip out. Um, and, and my family was checking out too. And I began to isolate myself from other people and from my family too, because I wasn't sure what I was going to expose them to. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I didn't want to hurt them you know, physically possibly, you know, like I, I had no idea. I was so unpredictable. There's no telling what was going to happen. So I isolated more and more and more. And towards the end there, I, I wouldn't even coming out of my, my bedroom, um, for, for weeks at a time sometimes. Yeah. I, th I think it, from what I've noticed, it's very common for veterans to, to describe this rage that they feel inside of them. Do you think um, or do you have any idea that where that rage was directed at? Was it from the experiences or was it at just um, the way you were treated 
after getting back home? Um, or do you, you have any kind of idea where that origin of that rage derived from? I think it was a combination of a lot of different things. I, it depends on what the veterans particular etiology of their, of their issues is. But, um, I, mine was from a combination of moral, moral injury, actual trauma that had happened to me and survivor's guilt. Um, I had the whole mishmash in there. So, um, I was angry at the, the futility of it all. I was angry at, um, not having done the things I could have done to, to help. Um, but you know, in retrospect, you, you think, and you're like, well, you, there, there's no way you can possibly know what to do in that particular moment. You know, you just try things and, and sometimes they just don't work. And, um, but, uh, I was angry at the fact that nobody around me really appreciated what was going on with me and everybody kept pushing me more and more and more into this pharmaceutical prison with bars made of pills, you know. Um, it, it just seemed that everybody was pushing me into a, a corner where I could slowly be forgotten and then eventually die. Um, wow. And truthfully, I, I wanted to die. I, I actively tried at least twice and um it's uh <laughs> it's really hard to push your finger on on one single thing that um the rage comes from but it's uh, i suffice to say it's it's a it's it's anger at the 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 anger anger at the 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 futility of life i guess in general um and 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 what I was forced to be subjected to. Yeah, definitely. That's totally understandable. Um, during your, your detox from all these prescriptions, like how long did that last? Cause I know benzodiazepine withdrawals can be fatal. Were you going into seizures or, and, and not only that, like I've also heard doing cold Turkey off SSRIs. It's incredibly painful as well in its own way. Like, could you differentiate between, the different withdrawal symptoms from the different substances you were taking? Yeah, actually, um, I was pretty smart about it. Um, I kind of took it one step at a time. And when I first got to Colorado, um, I, I immediately started using medical marijuana. I got my medical marijuana card as soon as possible. And I didn't even have my first VA appointment until I was there for like three months. So I'd been using medical marijuana already. And, um, I had I, I had already been using a lot less of the opiates and a lot less of the benzos, so I'd kind of built up a little bit of reserve. Mm -hmm. And um, so the first thing that happened is <clears throat> I asked my doctor. I said, "This is Colorado, so I have to ask this question, man. What do you think about medical marijuana?" And and <clears throat> uh, he said, to my surprise, that if you haven't tried it, I think you should, but I can't give you the narcotics while you're on it. And he, he didn't know that I was already using it. So I was just like, okay, take me off them. And he just, he took me off all of them, cold turkey. But I, because of this strategic reserve that I'd built up, I was able to kind of uh, dole that out. Like once every couple days, I'd take something to, um, you know, take, take some of this edge off. And then the rest of the time I would be dosing myself with massive quantities of cannabis oil and, um, extracts. And, uh, gosh, I was, I was eating it. I was, uh, 
smoking it. I was vaporizing it. I was smeared all over my skin in an attempt to get it in any way I could. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah. my tactics were really just sort of a ca carpet bombing approach. But um, I uh, eventually narrowed in on a few things that really helped me. And um, the, the benzos I didn't uh, try to tackle until fairly late in the process. Believe it or not, though, the worst things to come off of were those SSRIs and SNRIs. I was on Cymbalta, and um, that was possibly one of the scariest things to come off of because this rage, the, the rage that I had been talking about, that came out in full force. And I was, God, I, I took every piece of furniture in my living room and I chucked it off the second floor balcony of my house and and into the front yard just screaming at the top of my lungs and thank god i live out in the middle of nowhere or else yeah. you know really would have been a problem but um uh, i moved out here for a reason i moved out into no man's land so that i could be alone and i could be isolated and i could let all this stuff out definitely um so you basically did kind of a tapering approach knocking out kind of one prescription at a time um and then tackled the benzos and the SSRIs towards the end? Yeah, that the SSRIs came about midway through the process. The benzos came more towards the end. And the whole process took about a year and a half. And um, I, was, I, I was scaring the crap out of my doctors, though, because, you know, they – they were like, you, you can't do this. You can't do this. And I said, you have two choices here. You can either let me do it on my own and I'll just flush these pills down the toilet or you can help me out and you can try to give me some advice on this process. And um, I was lucky enough to have some doctors that, that were like, okay, we'll help you. Um, but they were very – they were terrified over what I was doing. Every single time I come in there, I have a list of medications, you know, half a page long and I'd just be crossing things out and saying, okay, let's eliminate this one this time. Um, give me – half dose on this one, maybe on this one, give me half the number of pills and so on and so forth. And I was just, I was going way too fast for them. They were not comfortable at all. And you said it took about a year and a half to fully get normalized off of those medications. Yeah. Uh-huh. It took a long time. Wow. Um, can I also ask, what did you have any experience with psychedelics before you were um, contacted by um, the filmmakers to, to try ayahuasca? Yeah, actually, I did. Um, when I was in college, I had dabbled in them a little bit, and um, I wasn't really looking for healing from psychedelics at the time. I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and um, but I had a lot of childhood trauma that I didn't really acknowledge. I hadn't acknowledged yet, and um, I ended up getting healing from the psychedelics anyway. Oh wow! Um, and but you had never tried ayahuasca before. Correct. Yeah, I, ayahuasca is one of those things I'd never tried. I'd never tried ayahuasca, ibogaine, toad, peyote, um, and I think that's that's about it. I had never tried combo, although it's not really a psychedelic, but that's another natural medicine that I tried. Um, during this process, the, uh, uh, I had tried, uh, mushrooms and I had tried some of the other synthetic psychedelics like MDMA and LSD when I was young. Um, and, uh, but this time around, I really stuck to the naturals. So, um, yeah. The, uh, can you describe what an ayahuasca experience is like? I know there's a purging process involved and, and it's somewhat 
physically uncomfortable in the beginning, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my first experience, I really didn't know what to expect. It had been forever since I'd had an actual psychedelic experience. And I wasn't really happy about having to purge. And I kind of mentally, I, I, I refused to accept it. I was like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, like, and, and I did everything in my power to try to prevent that from occurring in my brain. And so the whole time, my, my first experience, experience, I sat there and I was just extremely uncomfortable. I kept shifting around in my seat and my face was all screwed up and, and like all these weird expressions trying to kind of contain it and hold it in. And, um, you know, eventually the, uh, um, the, uh, facilitator, uh, Chris Young from soul quest church of ayahuasca. Um, he, uh, he came over and he said, how are you feeling brother? And, and I said, I'm just feeling really uncomfortable. I, I don't really, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be feeling, but I just feel uncomfortable. And I, um, he's like, all right, brother, we're, we're going to take care of you. And, um, he came around and he was like shaking some of these kashakas around me, like the palm fronds and various different, um, like almost like maracas. Um, and, uh, some like sprinkling with this flat flower essence, holy water kind of stuff. And, um, the combination of those things, this, this stimulation of various different senses caused me to, to purge for the first time. And it happened really quickly. Um, I just kind of darted for the bucket and, and started, uh, puking up my guts and, um, a whole bunch of emotions I kept locked up for a long time. I just kept, um, you know, puking and puking and well, purging is what they call it. Um, it, cause it really is, it's, it's an emotional purge. You're, you're getting rid of these, these things that you've kept, um, under, <clears throat> under wraps for, um, years and years and years. And you've never really been able to even acknowledge them much less experience them and, um, actually look at them. So, um, I, I purged out all of these emotions into this bucket and by the firelight, I could see this just black mass in the bottom of my bucket. And, and to me, it looked like a demon. Um, and it, all of this like negativity and horrible, the, the, the fear and the rage and, and the, the, um, gosh, just the, the physical, um, manifestation of all of these things in my body throughout the years, it, it all came out and it, it was there in the bottom of that bucket. And it, I kind of personified the demon in that moment and, and recognized it as an actual demon. And, and I was just like, my God, you know, I, I, I took this thing and I, I, I put it into myself and really it didn't even want to be there. I just kind of captured it from the, the, the air surrounding me. And I took it and I swallowed it and I pushed it down and it had just been trying to get out for years and years. And, and I, in an attempt to maintain control, I kept pushing it down and pushing it down and pushing it down. And, and I realized I, I hadn't just done this to myself, but I did it to the demon too. Like I, 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 caged that demon and I, I made it into a prisoner and, and in some kind of messed up way, I traumatized it too in so doing. Cause I mean, as we all know, like being caged, it's, it's traumatic. 
So um, <laughs> I had to apologize to myself, and then I had to come to apologize to the demon even. And the demon just said, forgive yourself. And I said, it's not that easy. And it says, it is that easy. All you have to do is let go. Quit carrying this around and just let it go. And, and I said, can I do that? I said, yeah, yeah, you can. You just have to just drop it. And, and so that's exactly what I did. I, I dropped it in that moment. You can actually see that in the, the, the film. That's the moment where I stood up and I uh, spread my arms out and I looked at the sky and I felt lighter than I'd felt in, in years and years and years. And this was all going on during your, your first um, ayahuasca trip is what you're yeah, telling me? That was the first experience right there. Um, and then the second experience was very different, and, and the third and the fourth also. Um, I, I went through four experiences that weekend. Um, I, I took the maximum number of, of ceremonies that you could have during a weekend because uh, I, I figured, you know, if I'm going to do something, like, let's just do it. Let's go all the way. And um, that's exactly what I did. I didn't want to come away from that weekend feeling like I could have done more to help myself. Definitely. Um, so you did um, two ayahuasca trips, two days in a row, back to back. Um, <clears throat> actually, it was uh, four uh, four ayahuasca um, trips in uh, three days. Okay. I, I did one Friday night, and then I did one Saturday morning. Then I did one Saturday night, and then another on Sunday morning. And um, <clears throat> and how long was this? Did it the experience last for? It's about three or four hours each. Oh, okay. um, and did you, I mean, you described seeing a demon and uh, letting and letting go. Do you feel like that was part of like the, the journey is having to, to give up control or, or let go and give in and just let the, the um, I guess the psychedelic trip just overtake you and, and let it carry you to wherever depths that it, it went. Yeah. I, I think that a huge, a huge feature of almost every psychedelic experience is, uh, the idea of surrender. Um, and, and it's not something, especially as veterans, we're, we're not taught to do that. We, we don't surrender. We will fight till our last dying breath. Um, to maintain that control over the situation, to, to maintain um, your ability to, to deal. Um, but the surrender really is, is an essential part of this experience and, and surrendering, surrendering to what life has to offer. And um, it's, uh, it's an extremely powerful experience. If you can manage to let go of your need to control um, I, I kind of liken it in, in, in the military. Um, if you're, if you're ever climbing a rope, um, you have to, if you, if you hold the rope too tight, uh, your, your hands and your arms will tire out very, very quickly and, um, eventually you'll fall. But, um, if you maintain, uh, like a looser hand on it, then you have a lot more, uh, control it. So it's like paradoxical that the more you sort of, um, uh, let up the more control you have. And I think that that's sort of, um, what psychedelics teach you too, is that if you can just manage to, to let go just a little bit, then you'll find that there's a different kind of control that happens. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a conscious control. It's not a, it's not something that you are directing, but you'll find that 
the universe itself sort of guides you along this path. And by letting go and letting the universe guide you, you actually end up having far more positive outcomes than you would if you're trying to just jam it through your intentions, jam what you want through. Um, oftentimes it doesn't work very well and, and you get slapped in the face as a result. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because that experience you just described is also like the main message in recovery from addiction, you know, giving up control to a higher power, whatever that is, the universe or or God or whatever. And, and the fact that this ayahuasca experience kind of reinforces that same ideology is just incredibly fascinating. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned also in the film, you, you, I remember one point you had said during your first experience, you felt love enter like or energy of love enter inside of you. And then on the second or third, you felt it leave your body. Um, do you feel like having those four consecutive, uh, trips, um, kind of carried you through these different stages of, of grieving and healing? Yeah. In many ways it felt like exactly that. Um, my first experience was the the releasing of this this demon that had really dominated my life for so long, and my second experience, the daytime ceremony um, on Saturday morning, was um, I, I felt all of this love um, enter me and um, this emptiness. I had, I had puked up. I had purged out this demon, and in the empty space that it had occupied, this love trickled in and filled me up. And just as quickly as it had come in, my third experience, it, it, it trickled out. And um, I was left feeling extremely empty and, and cold and confused. And I didn't want to end on that note. Um, so that's why I did the fourth experience. And the fourth experience is probably the hardest of them all. It's a lot of purging. It was very tough physically. Um, and I had already been run down throughout the course of the weekend. You know, you don't have really much food and, um, you don't have much sleep. You don't have much energy left at the end of everything. Um, and, and then I had that really, really difficult physical experience at the end. And, and I came out of it not even really knowing whether it had worked or not, whether it had put me on the right track. And, um, (laughs) I didn't know that it had worked until I came back around the fire and, um, I sat down next to Mike and, um, he said, how are you feeling brother? And I just started laughing and, and I realized that I, I was doing great. I was doing better than I've been in years and years and years. That's amazing. Um, so after that whole weekend experience and you leaving and flying back home, um, how did you feel mentally and emotionally, physically? Did you feel more connected or did you feel more a sense of direction reemerging into the, the family life? Like what, what was it like getting back home then as opposed to getting back home from deployment? Yeah, it was, um, it was very different, extremely different. Um, there's this this honeymoon period, like I, I described earlier, uh, when you get back from deployment. But it's sort it's almost like a false uh, facade. It, it's this uh, it, it's just a, a a sense of relief that you're now back home, 
And um, what you don't realize during this honeymoon period is that uh, your your mind and your heart is still so screwed up that you're not really able to truly appreciate all these things that are around you. But um, coming back from ayahuasca, um, I had really um, I felt like I'd I'd come a long way and I'd I'd fixed at least some of the problems. And it's not like it's not like it's a fixed as in like you're just you're now magically better. It doesn't really work like that. There's so it just opens your eyes to all of the things that you have to do in order to make yourself better. Um, I had so much work to do when I got home and I uh, I was, of course, riding high on this feeling of of accomplishment that I had done something that uh, was absolutely necessary for me to to get back to where I needed to be, but um, I I still had so much work to do, and and it, really you're discovering every single moment, every single day, all of these things that you need to be doing in order to help fix yourself. So I I set about trying to do those things, and and when I did, I I started to realize that there was a lot of resistance from the world around me to those things, you know, like everybody in my immediate environment wasn't entirely comfortable with this new me, this, this difference that they see, you know, they, they had become so used to me being broken and, uh, that, that people had to baby me or like take care of me or isolate me or protect me in some way, um, from, uh, the world. But, um, I now was in the position of, of starting to take on more and face more. And, um, when I, when I started doing that, when I started taking on more and facing more and, and having some really brutally honest conversations with my wife and, and, and things like that, um, it, it made them very uncomfortable and made them realize that they had built their own identity around the idea of me being broken too. And when I started to heal, it challenged their idea of who they were as, as individuals, as human beings. And then that put the onus on them. Now that I was beginning to change, they had to change too. And, um, that's, that's a difficult thing to be faced with that suddenly, Oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm no longer, this is no longer necessary. All the things that I'm doing, all the things that I have built myself up to be, it's not necessary anymore. And I have to change in order to accommodate this new, this new reality. Um, so it, it was, it was definitely, it was difficult, um, for a short period of time. And, and the movie shows that a little bit too, um, where there's definitely some friction between me and my wife when I got home, you know, and, and honestly, there was some friction between Mike and his wife too, because we had realized so much and come back. And now we're trying to really fix ourselves on a day to day basis. We're trying to put in the work. Um, everybody talks about the work and that's really all it is. It's that every single day, every single moment, examining yourself and your reactions to the things that happen in your life and determining if these things are useful anymore or not still. So, um, anyway, the, uh, the ultimate end goal really, uh, well, I guess the, the end result was that we had to come to the point where we, realized that our, our wives had been broken by our trauma 
and they had been traumatized in turn by us and that they had their own PTSD that they had to deal with. I mean, think about it. If, if you're the person you love more than anybody else in the entire world is constantly on the brink of death and they, you could wake up any morning and they could be dead, not, not breathing on the couch. Um, what, what kind of, of, uh, hypervigilance does that create in a person? So, um, yeah, I, I think that um, we had to give them the space to heal. And and at first I came on really strong and I was like, I tried this thing. It's called ayahuasca. It's amazing. It's a, it's an incredible tool. And um, of course, it's a scary experience though. And, and a lot of people who've never been exposed to it are just like, absolutely not. I'm never going through that. And um, we just, I personally had to kind of back off a little bit and say, listen, I, I understand you, you, this may not be your path, but I know now I've given myself, uh, the space to realize that I, I have in part broken you too. And, and that now that we realize that it's not just me that's broken, what, what can we do to help fix you too? Because this is no, no problem exists in isolation and, and we all have to try to get better together. Otherwise, we're going to break apart. And, um, and and then we just had to come to, to, to what what is it that you need to do in order to help fix yourself and allow whatever that is. It's, it's a lot of the things that my wife actually advocates for now is, is she advocates for families. And, and the main thing she, she tries to teach them is you need to give up your control, your, your feeling – that you need to control your veteran and tell him how he needs to act on a day-to-day basis. Um, you need to let him figure out what, what he needs to get better. And if that means psychedelics, it means psychedelics. If it means cannabis, it means cannabis. And just because they're illegal doesn't mean that your word means anything more than his. Um, you know, he's trying to find the things that, that work for him. And if those things work, then you have to allow it. But it's likewise in return, we have to allow whatever it is they are called to, um, that we have to allow them to figure out how to fix themselves. And, and it's different for everyone. It, no one approach works identically for everyone, but there are some tools that we can all explore and at least consider and take a look at and see if they're, they'll help. Yeah. Oh, I connect with that on so many levels. Um, I've noticed so many people who have some kind of trauma or addiction and um, seek out recovery of, of any means uh, after doing so and returning into a returning to a family environment. I think it is a lot met quite often with resistance because that be, doesn't become the focus problem anymore. And family dynamics usually tend to shift their direction on other problem areas and sometimes they have to you know face problem areas within themselves and that can often be met with um some some kind of confrontation and um and it is a difficult process for the family or for the social environment just as much for the individual so that that's really amazing how you covered that and um i I honestly think the way you went about handling that reintegration with your family it was was sounds like the most beneficial way, way you could have gone about doing it. Um, I noticed in the um, in the documentary I, I 
immediately saw you had a an end the drug war t-shirt um and i just wanted to ask why why do you think addiction rates and drug use has just skyrocketed in this country as of recent time you know we're in a in an opiate pandemic and and overdose rates are higher than ever could you even um just briefly cover what your thoughts are on why people today are so driven to turn to drugs to cope with with their everyday life yeah <clears throat> well i think that people are kind of driven to drugs um, to cope with everyday life. And they, they've done it all throughout history. Uh, but throughout most of history, our tools have been extremely poor. Um, you know, uh, the most ubiquitous tool is, is alcohol. And we all know what kind of social damage that that creates. And, and it's not just social damage, but economic damage and, and, um, and, and personal individual damage too. Um, these things, uh, it, alcohol is extremely toxic. I mean, it's an organic solvent for God's sake. Um, we're, we're putting the equivalent of, you know, uh, the chemical equivalent of, of methanol and, and, um, uh, other things like that into our system. You know, uh, it's, it's extremely bad for us. Um, we're just lucky enough to have developed, uh, an enzyme that can actually, um, metabolize alcohol, but there are, other tools out there which are equally bad, you know, heroin and, and cocaine and methamphetamine and all these things. Um, you know, I, there's a, there's a guy out there, his name is Dr. Gabor Mate. And, um, he's has some pretty profound things to say about, um, addiction, the causes of addiction. Um, and, uh, he said that addiction is not a problem. It's, it's actually an attempt to fix a problem. And that problem is almost always untreated trauma. We all have these traumatic in instances that affect our lives. Um, it's not just veterans. It's it's not. Uh, this isn't a veteran problem. It's not an American problem. This is a human problem. And um, we have right now 121 people in America that are committing suicide every single day, and that's active suicide. Um, those are act actual suicide attempts, but addiction in itself is really just suicide on an installment plan. Um, it's something that, you know, you're, you're not like actively trying to die every single time you're getting high, but, um, if you die, then, you know, so be it. Who, who cares? You know, everybody would be better off anyway. Right. So, um, there's this, this tacit, um, acknowledgement that uh, of the idea that you might die at any given moment and you're okay with that. Um, the, uh, we have like what, 198 fatal overdoses every single day. Um, so, you know, of the, of the actual suicides, 121 suicides, 22 of them are veterans a day. Um, if those numbers hold up, I think it's like 38, 39 veterans are, are overdosing and dying every single day. Um, it's a massive number of people and, and it's all coming from the exact same root cause and that's untreated trauma, usually childhood trauma. And, and the number one, uh, predictor of, uh, uh, post-traumatic stress in veterans is whether they were subjected to childhood trauma, uh, when they were young. So, um, this is, this, it's all tied together. All of these, these 
trauma sources. This is this is all one big problem. And we have to stop really thinking of these things as, as entirely separate. Um, there, there are relationships here. And um, if you have 121 people committing suicide a day, you have 198 overdoses, fatal overdoses every single day, that is a, a roughly 320 people every single day in America that are dying because of untreated trauma. And people right now, are they're, they're reaching for any tool out there that will help them treat it. And, and most often the ones that are, are uh, common in your area, if you live in a bad neighborhood, it could be heroin, it could be cocaine, it could be methamphetamine, um, who, who knows what it is, but all of these things might take the pain away for a really short period of time. But ultimately the pain comes back and it's going to be even worse because using these substances exposes you to additional trauma, the trauma of, of screwing your life up, screwing your relationships up, doing things to other people in order to maintain your addiction. Um, it's, it's this vicious cycle. Um, but if we have access in our toolkits to all of the different medications that are out there for treating trauma, not just the, the ones like methamphetamine and cocaine and heroin, but what happens if we had in our toolkits ibogaine, uh, toad, and um, uh, psilocybin mushrooms? Those things right there, they're not, they're not trying to medicate a symptom those things are actually trying to get at the root of the problem and be able to let you rip it out right there by the root. So if we have access to everything that nature has to offer, and, and even all the synthetics, I would, I would like to see the entire drug war end, not just against nature. I mean, I think nature is where we need to start. Um, it, I think it's completely unconstitutional for the government to outlaw nature, and there is nowhere in the Constitution that it gives our federal government the authority to be able to ban nature. So um, I think we need to start with nature, but eventually I'd like to see it all come to an end because I, I truly believe there's not a single substance out there which doesn't have a use. Maybe we haven't found it yet. But they all have uses. I mean, think about like heroin. Heroin is a semi-synthetic opiate, and it comes from the poppy plant. Um, the, at least the, the the base materials for it come from the poppy plant, and it's illegal. It's about two times as potent as morphine. Um, and uh, but we have other things on the market like fentanyl, which is a hundred times more potent than morphine, a hundred times more dangerous than morphine. And it's a Schedule II drug, and it's used in hospitals all over the place. In fact, right now, uh, fentanyl and all of its analogs uh, are probably responsible for more overdoses than heroin itself is. Oh, yeah. Because the, the drug war is creating all of these problems in this black market. You have a black market, which is completely uh, opaque. You can't see into the market. If I buy any kind of, of sack on the street, who knows what's in it? There's no guarantee that I'm getting what I'm paying for. If I am trying to, to purchase heroin from a dealer, it could be fentanyl, it could be car fentanyl, it could be Sioux fentanyl, who knows what it is? And if we bring all of these things into a legal regulated market where at least 
when you go and you pay money over the counter at a pharmacy, you are getting exactly what you're paying for and you know exactly how to handle it. There's no danger of you overdosing on something you didn't even know you had in your pocket. So um, I think that, that that's really a, a good place to start. But uh, there's another issue, too, that if you have people coming in and purchasing drugs of abuse, things like heroin over the counter, if they can do that, um, maybe they need a prescription for it. I don't know exactly what it looks like in the end, but um, if they're purchasing these things over the counter, then we then have an opportunity to introduce them to the substances and the practices that will actually help them heal from the trauma they're trying to medicate. Things like Ibogaine, which Ibogaine has shown amazing results. There's uh, a greater than 50% complete remission rate for addiction over the course of years. Um, and that's, that's greater than anything you'll find. I think AA and NA have extremely low success rates and they're right in the range of a placebo. Um, so, um, the Ibogaine though, it, it, it adds something to the equation and you can get remission rates. You can have total abstinence rates of years for, for years of, of about 50 to 60%. So, um, there are definitely substances out there which can help people, um, at the very least come off of some of these drugs they're addicted to. Uh, there are other approaches too, like, um, replacement therapy, um, where you're, you're giving people things like buprenorphine, um, uh, another word for it is suboxone. Um, you are getting people the help that they need, but by replacing it with a slightly less dangerous drug, something that they're not going to have, um, all of the issues with health problems, um, and possible overdoses. Um, these things can, can help immensely in, in at least, putting a, a, a stopgap measure in place, some kind of finger in the dam to help them get to the point where maybe they can start addressing these things on their own. Um, there's a lot of other uh, practices that you can use to, to try to heal from, from trauma, and not all of them are chemical. Um, I've found a lot of success with things like equine therapy, canine therapy, um, recreational therapy also. You know, this is for people who whose every waking moment is an agony, learning to how to have fun again is extremely important. Yeah, you know, so you know, taking somebody out and maybe um, having them hang out with some horses and and have that one on one connection with another animal and 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 then maybe go jump out of an airplane to provide that excitement that rush can change their lives and suddenly they're they're replacing these drugs with something that is completely non-toxic and in fact enhances their experience of life. Um, these are the, the ways that we can start introducing things to addicts, but you have to get rid of the stigma. You have to get rid of the fact that because they're an addict, they are treated as second-class citizens and sometimes they're treated as subhuman. It's horrible what we do in this country to addicts. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the, unregulation of these substances is just pushing control into to criminal elements of society and and when that happens there's really less regard for the safety of the user um and it, it's it's more apparent now with with the product of how you know 
things are going right now in, in our country itself. Um, and, and it's just, you know, astounding to me. Um, I wanted to touch one, one aspect briefly on, on the, the, how would I put it? How you're like taking ayahuasca. I mean, that is an extremely powerful psychedelic. And I think, um, for, for the facilitation of it being done, like where you were, we were taking it, um, in a controlled environment with professionals, it was more, much more therapeutic than if you were to take it just by yourself with very little knowledge on the, on, on dosage and stuff like that. Um, I mean, what would you recommend to anyone who out there listening, who was, uh, kind of interested in, in undergoing the same kind of experience as yourself? Yeah, I, I, the number one thing is find a practitioner that, that, you know, and trust. Um, the, the biggest issue I think with, uh, psychedelics is, uh, having somebody to be able to take care of you while you're undergoing this extremely profound experience. Um, sometimes you're, you're not able to actually take care of yourself during these experiences. You're, um, almost incapacitated, uh, especially with, with some of the, the shorter acting substances like toad and DMT. Um, they, they will put you in a state of complete, um, childlike dependence on others for at least 20 minutes mm-hmm. solid. And, um, they have to be there to make sure you're safe, make sure you don't, um, uh, uh accidentally try to hurt yourself, you know, roll off and, and, uh, fall off something or, you know, like, um, there's, there's so many things that can happen. If you are taking some of these substances in the presence of water, you can drown. Um, but, uh, overall psychedelics are extraordinarily safe. There are a few of the synthetic substances which are, um, physically more dangerous and, and, um, overdoses can happen, but they're extremely rare. Like the N-bomb series of drugs, they're extremely dangerous, but they're also rare on the market too. All of the natural psychedelics are extremely safe. Ayahuasca is um, the only danger with ayahuasca is that you might be on other medications that contraindicate. Um, Things like SSRIs and SNRIs, um, if you're on those, um, uh, ayahuasca is a combination of two different substances. Uh, it's an, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, and then there's also DMT in it. Um, the monoamine oxidase inhibitor just allows the DMT to get into your system and not be broken down. Um, uh, but the monoamine oxidase inhibitor is, is not particularly psychoactive on its own, but what it can do is it can, if all of the, if you're on any of the other pharmaceutical substances that can increase levels of serotonin in your system, you can get serotonin toxicity. And, um, so that's the main one. So pre-screening is, is extremely important. You have to have a full medical, um, uh, pre-screening process to make sure that you are not on any drugs that might contraindicate, um, especially for ayahuasca. Um, there are, uh, the rest of the, the psychedelics tend to be, uh, safer. Um, mushrooms have almost no contraindications. Almost anybody can come at mushrooms and, um, uh, at least as long as they don't take too much, they, they'll probably get some kind of healing from it. Um, the, uh, 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 things like, uh, peyote also, um, can be, uh, profoundly, uh, healing. Um, and, uh, there are 
native tribes um, all over the United States that use peyote as a, as a ritual, as a sacrament. And um, uh, they're quite um, experienced, thousands and thousands of years of experience in using uh, these substances to, to help heal people, oftentimes from trauma. From 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 that, um, they uh, uh, there's a, a tradition really in, in Native American tribes in the United States where uh, warriors that went off to to fight when they came back as a part of their healing process, they would you know have to tell the story of their their war, and um, the rest of society would have to hear it. I think that's another part of the. The, the equation that's missing here is that um, uh, American soldiers have been very powerfully um, excommunicated and othered by our society. Um, we comprise like 1% of the population, and um, there's not a lot of cross-pollination between military and, and the rest of our society. People don't know, and people really don't care which, what we've been through either. And, and that is, is part of the process of healing, is being able to recount the things you've done and the things you've seen without feeling shame and without being shamed for it. Um, so the, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of, of native practitioners that can help people, um, come through this process of psychedelic awakening and, um, possibly help you get some healing from it. There are also a number of, um, other churches that are springing up. The one I went to in Florida is um, Soul Quest Church of uh, Soul Quest Ayahuasca Church of Mother Earth, I believe, is the full name. Um, but uh, it is a uh, church that was founded by an American, not not native. He's not a, a native or anything like that. But um, he found the benefits from ayahuasca, and he wanted to bring the message to the people. This is really the good news, you know. This that trauma is not a life sentence, and it's not a death sentence either. So this is the new gospel, you know, that you, you don't have to be um, inhibited and, and restricted and, and defined by your trauma forever. You can heal from it and you can move on. So, um, you know, I would, I would suggest for people to do their research and really, really look at all the different ways that they might possibly be able to undertake these sacraments. And they are sacraments. These are extremely sacred experiences. Um, it doesn't matter. It is, and I'm not talking about from any one particular religious background. This is, this is more about, uh, the sacredness of the human experience and, uh, do your research, make sure you know exactly what you're getting into, make sure you know what the risks are. Um, there are risks with, with these substances. Um, and most of them, uh, with ayahuasca, there are some you know, interactions, but, um, with the others, you know, it's, it's mostly social risks. You don't want to be out in public. You want to be in a safe, secure area where you're isolated from the rest of society so that whatever comes out can come out. If you need to scream, you need to cry, you need to puke. Um, you need to roll around in the grass and laugh. It's, you can do any and all of these things and nobody's going to look at you weird. Um, you're going to have a practitioner there that is there to protect you and help keep you safe and, and, um, and create a container for you to let it all out and, and then be able to reintegrate it all. Definitely. Um, yeah, that I couldn't have put it into better words. Um, we're right about an hour. So I was going to try and wrap it up, but first beforehand, I just wanted to, um, 
thank you for coming on. You know, thank you for your service. Um, your, your story is incredibly inspiring. Um, all the things you've overcame with getting, you know, doing, getting off all the prescriptions you did and then sharing your, your experience for the world to, to witness and benefit from is, is an amazing thing. Um, so I just wanted to commend you for that, that that's truly inspiring. But before we go, is there any last, um, message you, you want to give out to anyone listening who may be going through, um, similar experiences, maybe with addiction or, um, any veterans who are going through PTSD and, um, anything you, you would want to, to share with them? Well, first, I just want to say thank you for, for being here to listen. Um, that's one of the things we're denied uh, at when we get back from war is, is people don't want to listen to what we have to say. Uh, we're, we're weird. We're abrasive. Um, and uh, not many people want to deal with us. So just, just thank you for, for being here to listen. It's part of the reintegration process of us back into society. Um, I would say to anyone who's struggling with addiction um, or suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, hang on. It's worth it. You're worth it. No matter what's happened to you, those experiences do not have to dominate your life. They do not have to define who you are for the rest of it. Like I said earlier, these traumatic experiences, they're not, they're not a life sentence and they're not a death sentence either. You don't have to die from these things. You can heal. You can go on. You can get better. And truthfully, what psychedelics have taught me is that in many ways, you will never be exactly the same person as you were before, but you can possibly grow into an even more amazing person than that. So hang on. Hang on, keep trying, keep moving forward, 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 forward. forward.